this word will encourage you this morning. We're at the table with Jesus. Last week we were in Luke the 19th chapter. We did use Luke the 7th chapter verse 34 as a launching pad for the entire series because Jesus did not only come to seek and to save the lost, but one of the ways, the methods that he used was where he also said, also said there in Luke 7 that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and that took place at the table. Uh, we will see some historical context today that will help us understand as we learn lessons from Jesus at the table. We said last week that traditionally as Americans, we I mean I did growing up, we sat at the table, we had dinner as a family, we learned lessons there, manners were learned at the table. Maybe we need to get back to the table so some people can learn some manners. That's where we say yes ma'am, no ma'am, thank you please. And if you said pass the biscuits at our house, it was what's the magic word? Please, that's right. But we're learning. And last week, um, our message from Luke, the 19th chapter, led us to generosity. Uh, it was Notice it was a G, and today the lesson is going to lead us to grace, another G. Um, so John the Baptist, Lisa referred to him in Luke, the 7th chapter, verse 33. He was the last in the line of the Levitical priesthood. Now, that's amazing to me, and we can look back, and we understand that, and we know that. They may not have known that at this particular time because it was 40 more years of the Levitical priesthood before it completely uh, was dismantled, and now we don't even know genealogically where the Levitical priesthood runs. But the Levitical priesthood were the priests that served before the Lord. The high priest came from that line. But it was to cease. Uh, the law and the prophets were preached until John. John's name means grace. It's a brand new covenant. It wasn't going to be ran under the old system. So much so that Jesus tells us and prophesies in Matthew 24 that the end of the age would come. And unfortunately... Uh, what a blessing. I talked to a young man on Friday night uh, who was in seminary at Liberty University, and he, he was asking me questions, and the conversation led to eschatology. The conversation led to the end of the days or the end of the world, and I was so blessed to hear that Liberty University in their seminary is at least presenting that there's not just one way that it could happen. They are letting these guys know that the end of the world was not the end of the cosmos, but it was the end of an age, Ionian. That's what Jesus was declaring, and it would culminate with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and there has not been any priesthood. My opinion, and it's just like the opinion poll, it probably doesn't mean much, but I'll let you know where I stand. My opinion is there is no need for a third temple to be built. That We don't need a third temple in Israel because all that would do would lead us back into uh, animal sacrifice. And we know because of Hebrews that we have a great high priest who has already sacrificed himself as the final, the last, the only, the greater sacrifice so that we don't need a bunch of Levitical priests standing at the altar shedding the blood of goats and bulls. I can preach on that for a while because it was a greater blood. Uh, and 
So there is no need for a Levitical priesthood because he has made you and I a kingdom of priests that serves before the Lord. So John the Baptist, the last Levitical priest, uh, in the seventh chapter of Luke, verse 33, it said, Jesus is speaking and he's telling those around him, John came neither eating nor drinking wine and you said that he has a demon. So in other words, John spent his life fasting. That was the means and the method of the Old Covenant. If you're taking any notes down, you can write a note down that the means and the methods of the Old Covenant required people to fast. John 7 verse 34, The Son of Man, Jesus speaking about himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here, he's a boozer, a glutton, a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it amazing that he threw the IRS right in there with all the other sinners? <laughs> I'm just joking if you work for the IRS. I'm not. Now in these two verses here, chapter 7, verse 33, chapter 7, verse 34, we see the collision of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. John the Baptist came fasting, but Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking. In other words, he was feasting. Under one covenant, you were always fasting as a requirement to get God's attention and approval, but he's already given you his attention and approval in the new covenant, so the custom is feasting. We get to feast on the Lamb. It's a continual feast. Again, my opinion is we're not waiting for the great supper of the marriage of the Lamb. We are already married to the groom and we are already participating in that great feast. Because if we're not married to him, we don't legally have the right to use his name. But he said, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, I'll give it to you. Why? Because you have the legal right as the spouse of the groom to have every benefit that he has. You also have the covenant to have intimacy with the groom because without a covenant there's no love in it without any wed there's no bed okay still believe in that now it's the end of fasting and it's the beginning of feasting are you saying that we don't have to fast I'm saying you don't have to fast didn't say that the Holy Spirit might not lead you to fast for your own belief it's about unbelief that the believer has that's what Jesus was telling the disciples when the demon wouldn't come out. Why would he say in one verse, you all have the power to cast out demons, but in another verse, we twist it to make it sound like that there are some demons that don't come out unless you fast. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's talking about your unbelief. There may be a point where you are led by Holy Spirit to fast so that you will get in alignment with what the Holy Spirit has already done. It's a finished work. You have power over demons. You can walk on them, tread on them. They won't hurt you. I didn't say go out in the woods and pick up three of them, put them in a box and bring them back to the church and sling them all over the place. Because if you did, I would make a new door right there. I don't like snakes. I would go that way because you would be going that way first. You would command it to stop because she likes all animals. She's an animal lover. One covenant was requiring you to fast in combination with the celebration of all of the festivals that they had. While the new covenant is the, going to be found in celebrating a person who offers an invitation to us 
for a continual feast. Can I introduce you to that invitation? Grab your Bibles and travel with me to the invitation in Revelation, the third chapter, verse 20. Revelation chapter 3. The word revelation, apocalyptic, is just uh, unveiling. The whole book is about Jesus. It's not about a beast. It's not about a whore of Babylon. It's not about a mark of the beast. All of those things are in there. But those things, again, I'm going to tell you, it's my opinion. Most have already happened. It's a book of symbols and signs. Um, there are some things that still will happen throughout the book of Revelation, but in it is a book of about Jesus. Read the first chapter, the first verse. These are the things about Jesus Christ, an unveiling, a divine revelation of Jesus. So we, even when we read Revelation, because the volume of the book from Genesis to Revelation is about who? Jesus. That's why we've got to present Jesus. Our messages, whether we preach from the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether we preach from Malachi or we preach from Revelation, our message is Jesus. We're feasting on him, and he stands at the door. He says, here I am, and I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, and I will cleanse them of all their sin. They'll be holy before me. I'll make sure they follow all the requirements of the law. Is that not what your Bible says? No, it, it says, I will come in, and I will eat with that person. It's an incredible thing that over these last several months as I've been studying on this and looking at this, that one of the intentional purposes of the Father was to send Jesus in the flesh to have a meal with us. I believe it's incredibly important for us to get back to having meals together. As families in our homes whether that's you and mama or that's you and just some kids or if that's a whole family, we need to get back to eating meals together. I believe that it should be an intentional purpose of the church to collectively gather together and to share a meal together. That's why we are purposefully structuring Wednesday midweek services around a meal at a table. Sometimes we, broke, we break open the Bible, but most of the time we're just breaking bread. And in breaking bread, we're gaining fellowship, we're building relationship, and we'll exchange phone numbers, we'll exchange prayer requests, we'll minister to one another and encourage one another because that's the invitation that Jesus gave to you. That is the invitation. Let me say something real quick. This just boom, downloaded in my spirit. If your first invitation to people is to your church, you're missing the point. The first, your first invitation to people should be to invite them to Christ. Now, they, could, they need to connect with a local body, but what if they come to church and they never connect to Jesus? Because it happens all the time. We need to be sharing Jesus with everyone we come in contact with. My opinion is, that the best way to do that is around a meal, a cup of coffee, a sandwich. To break down the barriers and the walls, that's what Jesus did. And the invitation that Jesus is offering is one of fellowship and one of relationship. And I think that that's why, um, I, I believe that most people attend church and will stay in church because of a pre preference. 
They prefer a certain worship style. They, they prefer a certain preaching style. They prefer a certain program for their children. But inevitably, they will only stay because of the relationships that they build within that congregation. And if they don't build any relationships, we talked last week about the precept of sow seed time and harvest. Proverbs tells us to find, to find a friend. Guess what you must do? You must, must first sow friendship. If you will show friendship and be friendly, you will reap friendship and people will be friendly to you. It's seed time and harvest. The mealtime and the customs depicted in the Bible can express social, cultural, spiritual, and even sacred symbols and ideas. If they sat down at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were celebrate, there was a sacred um, celebration that they were having. But sometimes when they sat down and the wealthy were having a meal, it was all about social activity and even a social ranking and classes of people. Jesus addressed this throughout his ministries in the Gospels. Well, he'll tell us, don't stand and wait and get the head of the table, offer that seat for the head of the table to somebody else. See, their mindset was, if I'm at the head, I've got clout. I am somebody, look at me. And if you set way back there, you weren't much. But Jesus said, set way back there and let somebody else that probably doesn't deserve it and society wouldn't say they deserve it, sit at the head of the table. Mules can affirm kinship, friendship, and goodwill. They acknowledge one's status. It's a recognition of peaceful disposition and arguments could be settled. Even to, 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 in today's society, when countries are at war, they go to a table and sit at a table to commit to non-aggression and violence. Meals can be divided into ordinary meals, festive meals, and sacred meals. But the custom, and this is where I wanted to get to, the custom of Jesus' day is to recline at the table. While reclining, one's head rested on the chest of the person dining beside them. Now, John thought he was the favorite. It's just that he got the position where he actually got to recline on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper in his bosom. That's where we get the term laying in one's bosom because the culture was if the table was here, you leaned on cushions, you reclined on cushions, and your feet were behind you, thank God, because they didn't have uh, nail salons to get a pedicure before you went to the dinner table. Oh, I just had an image in my head that I want to get out of sitting at a table with nasty toenails. I know Lisa just threw up in her mouth. This was such... <laughs> I got no Mona laughing up here now. Now, the Qumran Jews... Now, the Qumran Jews were up around the Masada area. How many of you have been to Israel went to the Dead Sea with us and got to see the area of the Qumran Scrolls. Well, the Jews there who had fled from Judea in 70 AD because of the destruction of the temple, that's why they went up there. And we have a lot of uh, manuscripts from the scriptures that they took with them that were preserved. And when they were found, we know that we have manuscripts from the Old Testament. But those Jews, because of the desert area of uh, Qumran and the Dead Sea, they 
insisted on washing their entire bodies before going to the mealtime with one another. It was hot, it was dusty, their feet were nasty, but their custom was their, their feet weren't going to be hid under the table with a tablecloth like we would. They would recline and they would put their feet behind them. I hope you have that in your imagination and in your memory right now because ancient mealtime would be preceded by hygiene practices. Lord, take us back to hygiene practices before we come to the dinner table. I mean, we've said, Mona and Fred and I, we've said Lisa wanted to was wearing masks way before the government mandated masks, especially at the dinner table. You don't double dip at all. Don't even think about it. But what can we expect at the table with Jesus? What should we be expecting when we come to the table? Last week we learned that it sparks generosity in people. Today we're going to see that you can expect grace at the table. Can anybody say thank you, Jesus? No matter what your story is, no matter what your history is, no matter what your past is, what you did, said, watched, or heard last night, there's grace being offered at the table together. And you can say thank God anytime in this message you want because thank God for His grace. Luke, the 15th chapter, verse 17. Now, if you know the story of Luke's gospel, the 15th chapter, you have a lost coin. Um, then you have a lost sheep, and you have a lost son. And then the story of the prodigal, the lost son, he has wandered into a Gentile land and squandered his inheritance. He's wasted his inheritance. We come to verse 17 where he finds himself in a pig pen, and it says, when he came to himself... God bring people to themselves today. I mean, come on somebody. Bring them to themselves. No matter where they are, what their condition is, what their situation is, where they've gotten themselves with their choices, may they come to themselves today. And he said to himself, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I believe there are many believers, sons and daughters of God, who are perishing with hunger, yet Jesus is standing at the door, and He's knocking, and He's inviting them to have a meal with Him where He will quench their thirst, and He will feel their hunger. Praise God. The interesting thing about the story of the prodigal when he comes home is that the father, I love to read it in the Living Bible because it literally says that as the son began his rhetoric, as he began his rehearsed story, Father, I'm not worthy to be called a son. I just want to be servant so that I can have something to eat. The father stops him. The Living Bible says he ignored his confession. Isn't that amazing? That the father ignored his confession. He didn't even pay attention to his attempt to confess his faults because the father, listen to me, had already made up his mind. I feel God. He already made up his mind about his son. Can I tell you part of the good news this morning, the gospel that I want to share with you is the father has already made up his mind about you this morning. Can anybody clap their hands and say, thank you, Jesus, that the father 
has already made up. How do I know that? Because verse 23 says that when he starts talking, he says, go get the, the fatted calf. What does that mean? That means that the day that the boy left, the father already had made up his mind that when he does come home, I'm going to prepare, be prepared to have a dinner, a meal around the table with my son. Why? Because we are in relationship. We have fellowship, and it's at the table that he will be reminded that he's a son. Hmm. Wow. One of the greatest ways for you, for me, to express grace, undeserved favor, unmerited favor on others is to share a meal with them. About 14 years ago when I went through a divorce and all types of emotional trauma and then the Lord led me to forgive those who had hurt me. Now, forgiveness occurs whether the other person accepts your apology or not. You release others and you forgive them. But reconciliation only takes place when you both come to a table and you have an agreement and you both forgive one another. I had the privilege of sitting at a pizza hut in Ohio and extending grace and forgiveness to one for one who had hurt me while they extended grace towards me, a reconciliation took place at that table 14 years ago. I, I could pick up the telephone and dial the person's telephone number right now and have a conversation. And I'm, that's not to say anything about me. It's to say that once I had experienced the grace of God because He invited me to the table regardless of my faults and my failures, then it's like Matthew 10, 8, 10, 8 last week, freely you have received... Freely we should be giving. So the same table that Jesus invites us to is the same table we should be inviting others to to extend grace to them. Can I tell you what's served at the Father's table? It's not just tenderloin. It's amazing grace. That's what's served at the Father's table. It's no accident that through the centuries we've come to a place where we use the term to say, grace before we eat our meal. Now turn with me to today's text and I'll try to relay a few things to you from Luke the 7th chapter verses 36 through 50. I wanted to paint a picture in your mind of how they reclined at the table, the position of their body, the position of their feet, so that you could have this in your imagination as we share this morning this story of the woman. It's a snapshot of another table. A Pharisee named Simon has invited Jesus to his house for a meal. Now, the Pharisees externally looked really, really good. They had their phylacteries. They had their garments with the the tzitzis on the tassels on the end of the prayer shawl. They had fine robes. Matter of fact, Jesus said it this way. You are whitewashed sepulchers. You look really good externally. On the outside, you look great. But on the inside, internally, you're full of dead men's bones. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came to raise dead things back to life again? We've got to realize that Jesus, that's God wrapped in 
human flesh, when he came to the planet, his purpose was to intentionally eat and drink with people to find out what their situation was, what their desperation was, and to, at that table, offer them life. Jesus is the life giver. He is the bread of life. When we sit down at the table to eat with Jesus, and he's extending his grace to us. He's offering us the bread of life, folks. And when we have the bread of life, that will sustain us. Not, men does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And everything that Jesus said about you is what the Holy Ghost is trying to remind you about today, how... He is kind towards you. He's loving and tender towards you. He's compassionate towards you. And then all of the things that Paul follows up by saying that you are more than conquerors. You're victorious. You are overcomers. That's the word. That's the bread that Jesus is sharing at the table with you this morning. He's here to raise the dead. Anything dead in your life? I say pull up to the table. Eat on that bread. Experience His grace again. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees, that Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with them, Jesus accepted the invitation. He went to the Pharisee's house, and it says there in verse 36, he reclined at the table. Our whole series is about what's happening, what we can expect at the table. Now, as they reclined there and they're eating the meal, entering stage left behind Jesus is a woman from the town. A sinful woman, it's amazing that Dr. Luke has to put in there that adjective sinful. He didn't just say a woman, he said a sinful woman from the town enters. Can we take a moment and look at that word sinful or sin? That the adjective here that's put in front of the woman sinful leans to the uh, meaning of to forfeit having or to not share in the reward or any decision apart from faith. That, let me just dumb it down for all of us. She wasn't following the Ten Commandments. And because she wasn't following the Ten Commandments and the law of the day, they referred to her, she missed the mark, and she was a sinner. Let's break it down even further. The, word, the root word here is hamardia. And that's the root word for sin. And ha, H-A in the Greek, means without end. Marios is the stem word from the root word morph. It means form. So when you morph, when the caterpillar has a metamorphosis, it takes up on a different form. So the word homaria thus is a distorted form. It's the lie that you have believed about yourself. Sin is the life outside of the context with the blueprint of the one who has designed you. I'm a compliance officer. I do building inspections. I, I look at building plans. And when I look at the building plans, if it's out, and then I go look at the building after it's being built, and the building is not to the form or the blueprint or the design for which the architect has designed it, we make them stop the work. But I can tell you that the work of the master designer and the blueprint that he has designed and what he formed you to be matches but when you believe the lie, you are acting and operating outside of the master blueprint of the way that God has and what He has designed you to do. 
It, is, it means to behave out of tune with God's original harmony. When I saw that, mm, I, I went to Matthew, the 11th chapter, verse 28 in the Message Bible. He says, uh, it says, are you burnt out? Are you worn out? Frustrated with religion? Come and learn from me. The unforced rhythms, there's that harmony. Behaving in the unforced rhythms of grace. Mm. Now their religion, their rules, their rituals said that this woman had no place at the table. See, their culture was a Jewish mind of a man that says, not only as a woman can you not sit here, but because you're a sinful woman, you can't even come in the house. Her sin defiled her, and then if she touched the food, it would defile the food, or if she touched them, it would defile them, and so she wasn't even allowed near or in the house, much less touching anyone in the house. But what those at the table didn't realize, but that as the Greek expresses in this text, she knew that she had already been forgiven. Her intention wasn't come to come to be forgiven. Her intention was to offer gratitude for the grace that had already been extended to her. Man, in my imagination, I imagine that every Sunday morning is a bunch of people coming together to get at the table together and to uh, be, show gratitude for the grace that the Father has extended towards us throughout the week. I mean, that's what I see Sunday morning as we're all gathering up to the table and we are just going to share gratitude. We're going to express gratitude for the great goodness of the God who has extended His grace towards us. Amen? The Pharisees who invited Jesus was focused on her past actions, but Jesus was focused on her present intentions. See, when you get around the Pharisee, all they'll want to bring up is your past. But when you get at the table with Jesus, you can expect, expect Him to be totally focused on the present intent, what's going on in the moment. Now, I think so many times at church, uh, in fellowship with others, in relationships with others, we get so focused on anything and everything around us, including these things, that we don't, we don't catch the moment, the intention and the purpose of the moment that was being experienced. What if Jesus was on his cell phone when she walked in? What if we, he was preoccupied, preoccupied with his fantasy lineup for one o'clock this afternoon because we got to make sure Matthew's waving his hands back there. <laughs> you know, if you're a Cowboys fan and as Ryan is a Vikings fan, it's, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. One moment we're, yay, yay, yay. The next one, why'd you do that? But if you're preoccupied with other things, what? but Jesus wasn't. He gave his full attention to her as she walked in to the room. Jesus tells a parable. If you'll read the parable there in Luke, the seventh chapter, you'll find out that he says to them, there's two men, one owes a lot, one knows little. Both of their debts are forgiven. Who will express the most gratitude? The Pharisees say, obviously, the one who was forgiven much. And Jesus said, yes, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And Jesus says to Simon, 
as this woman walks into the room and stands behind Jesus. Now, I've tried to give you the picture that he's reclining, his feet are behind him. She walks in behind Jesus, his feet are reclined behind him, and she begins to weep over his feet, cry tears over his feet, wiping them with his hair. You know the story, the alabaster box that she brought this perfume in. The word alabaster in the Greek here is stone. It's amazing that the stones had to be broken for us to get to a place of grace. He's still rolling away stones, folks. Not just the stone of the grave that he came out of, but the stone of the law that condemns you and brings accusations against you. He's rolled it away. The stone has been broken. Why? Because the only thing that he offers at his table is amazing grace. He says to Simon, you didn't give me water to wash my feet. You're, you're so pharisaical that you didn't adhere to your own customs and laws to wash my feet and you're trying to condemn this daughter uh, of mine who is now, she's giving me water for my feet through her tears. The custom was for the host to greet each of his guests with a kiss. He said, you didn't kiss me when I entered your home, but she's not stopped kissing my feet since she got here. You didn't pour oil or perfume on my head, but yet she's poured out perfume on my feet. And this is incredibly powerful. If you will take Jesus up on his invitation, you can expect that grace is going to be on the table every single time. And there is never on the menu condemnation. Jesus will never offer you condemnation. He'll never serve condemnation to you. Others might try to get you to eat it and force feed it to you, but he never will. Something that caught my eye in the text is verse 44. It says, Then Jesus turned to the woman behind him, yet he speaks to Simon. Look at verse 44. Turning to the woman and saying to Simon, the first thing that I got here was that grace will always look you in the eye. Grace will not, you cannot escape the eye contact of the grace of God. No matter where you go, grace will be in your face. <laughs> Jesus looks at her and says to Simon, look at her. This look is not a look of condemnation. He wants Simon to see her the way that he sees her. At the table this morning, the grace of God is being offered with no condemnation. And Jesus is saying to us to look at everyone around us the same way that he looks at them. And how does he look at them? He looks at them with grace-filled eyes. How are you looking at the unbelievers around you? If it's through eyes of condemnation, you will never ask them to sit at the table with you and eat. But if you will look through the eyes of grace and see them the way that Jesus sees them, you'll have no problem Offering them a seat at your table. Grace always turns towards you. Grace will always defend you. Jesus was defending her in the midst of Pharisees and her critics. And he will always defend you. Verse 47, I'm hurrying. Therefore I say to you, her sins, now he's still talking to Simon here. He says to Simon, her sins, which are many, You've tried to bring them up today, but they're all forgiven. I like this in the, mess, in the mirror Bible. This is what it says. 
Listen to this. It's on the screen. Do you, do you now see what grace means? However much out of sync with her blueprint she was, and however many her distortions were, she had had been perfectly freed from it all. Remember, I told you she didn't come to be freed and forgiven. She came knowing that she was already freed and forgiven. And to be forgiven means that whatever your sins were, they no longer define you. They were and never could be who you really are. She arrived here earlier purposefully prepared with an alabaster flask of expensive perfume to show how extravagantly much she loved me. Are we showing up early with a purposeful intent to show how much extravagantly much we love Him? Because grace always leads to gratitude. If you've experienced the grace of God, it will inevitably lead you to gratitude. Jennifer, if you'd come and play. The verb to forgive here in the Greek, I've told you before that we only have three tenses. We have past, present, and future. In the Greek language, there's over eight tenses. This particular perfect passive tense of the verb to forgive here denotes that action, which at least I already made note of this today, it's an action which is, has been completed in the past, but the effects of which are regarded as continuing into the present without end. Nothing that happens in time could possibly interrupt this reward. Touch your neighbor and says he's forgiven you. Just tell your neighbor right now, he's forgiven you. That means that he completed the action in the past, but the effects of what he did at the cross where his blood was shed, somebody get happy about this, the effects of what he did at the cross over 2,000 years ago are still perpetuated towards us today without end, and nothing in time can interrupt what he did for you at the cross. That's God's grace. Hmm. Get happy about it. Now, like most Greek words, the word for to forgive is a compound word. Apo means away from, and emi means who I am. Thus, forgiveness is in the essence restoring one to their I amness. What are you saying? It's restoring you to the oneness, that harmony that God's blueprint designed us to walk and act in. Thus, forgiveness in, in essence is restoring of one's true I amness. The injury, anybody been hurt? The insult, the shame, the hostility, and the guilt can no longer define who you are. Verse 48, he then turns to the woman again and assures her, you are completely forgiven. That's what he said in the Greek. He told Simon that her sins were forgiven, but he turns to her and looks her in the face and says, I want to reassure you, your sins are completely forgiven. Past, present, future, your sins are forgiven. Grace is always served with a heaping helping of peace. 
I'll, again, I like the mirror translation. I'm going to end with verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your conviction of the truth has perfectly realized your salvation. Bon voyage to sin. Journey on and in this place of seamless oneness. I took care of all that. Now journey on in this seamless oneness that you are designed to experience with me. I, I believe that I could speak for the Lord this morning as a mouthpiece and say that he's telling you to go on and live your life. Now, it, this, this phrase, it, it includes a personal touch as he looked her in the eyes and sent her on her way. And he said, the peace is this place of unhindered enjoyment of relationship and friendship in the context of sonship. And so there's no guilt, there's no suspicion, there's no blame, there's no inferiority at the table. As you stand at the, this morning, as you stand with me, I want to remind you that Jesus is standing and he's knocking at the door. Now, Please don't get me wrong and don't walk out of here saying that I don't believe that that scripture could be applied for an evangelical purpose to tell those who are unbelievers that Jesus wants to enter into their life. Absolutely, let's just say yes. That's, that's completely true and can be used in that context. My opinion is because Revelation, the third chapter, is written to the church read the first seven chapters each chapter is written to a church he's not speaking to unbelievers he's speaking to the church of the living God and he says I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking because I want to continue this relationship yes you are forgiven yes your sins are under the blood but I want in ongoing interaction with you at the table so that you can continually, continually experience my grace with a heaping helping portion of peace because if you've experienced his grace you are definitely experiencing his peace and when you're experiencing his peace it's a place of unhindered friendship and relationship in the context of sonship beyond guilt beyond shame beyond blame and it there's there's no inferiority at the table I'll share more later in the series but Mephibosheth was David's grandson and, or Jonathan's grandson and David went and found him and when he found him he was crippled he was maimed his legs were all messed up but he invites him to the king's table where at the king's table there was no inferiority he was royalty as he sat at the table despite his disability despite his distortion and even his lack of being able to contribute to society there was no inferiority Jesus accepts you and me. I believe, I guess, as we leave this morning, that my intention would be to encourage you to continue to sit at the table with the Master, to eat of His grace and His peace. But beyond that is to take it outside of the four walls. You know, if we're ever going to be collectively the church, we must start inviting people to the table. Don't expect people to come to church with you until you invite them to go to dinner with you.
I mean, they don't want you what you have to offer them at church until they know that you want to have a relationship at a dinner table with them or over coffee. Matter of fact, I, I believe the Lord is showing me right now that if you'll invite them to dinner, they'll invite themselves to church. Take them out for a McDonald's hamburger. Go get a cup of coffee. Set at a table with them. Share the good news with them. Just share how much God's been good to you. And they'll inevitably just invite themselves to church and want to sit around with other people to experience the goodness of God. Let's just bow our heads. Let's see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. We have one more thing we're going to do this morning before we dismiss. But before that, I want to just offer a moment of reflection and see what Holy Spirit wants to do to you, through you, and in you right now. Every heart clear, anything on anybody's heart before we move on. I believe we've obeyed God. Amen. Would you be seated for just a moment? Thank you.